0: This is an ABC podcast. Comets are still headed for Earth.
1: What if the big one was on its way? And by big, I mean an almighty asteroid. Yes, welcome to the apocalypse here on Science Friction. And we all know, don't we, how much Hollywood loves an apocalyptic asteroid.
2: We've got hits from Finland to South Carolina. Its power is greater than all the hydrogen bombs.
1: Natasha Mitchell here with our series on ways our world could come to a cataclysmic end.
2: And it's going to
3: strike the earth.
1: Smith's my co-host and the reporter for this series. Hey Natasha. And it's natural apocalypse events we're talking about isn't it so not nuclear war or whatever.
4: That's right last episode it was solar destruction next time it's super volcanoes but today it's the big hitters on the apocalyptic menu.
5: That meteor is five miles wide and it's definitely gonna hit us.
4: They're big, hugely powerful, and they have a habit of killing off species.
1: Yeah, cue the poor dinosaurs. Carl, will we suffer the same fate?
4: Well, astrophysicist Dr Brad Tucker from the Australian National University is so concerned about that possibility. He flew to Washington, D.C. to lobby for the world to pay more attention.
0: I mean $110,000 for one person and one facility in Australia to prevent potentially a city get being wiped off the face of the earth. And, and I'm not using this as a scare tactic. This is just the fact.
1: So how do we spot asteroids? Could we stop or perhaps deflect one if one was heading our way? And what can we tell from the scars they've already left here
4: on Earth? Okay, for that last question, I decided to meet Brad Tucker at the Mount Stromlo Observatory. It's just a short drive through the countryside outside Canberra in the ACT, Australia's capital territory. We can see the husk of a few of the old observatories here. They serve as reminders
0: for that day. As we look around and see buildings that don't have the domes on them, the fire was
4: hot enough to melt aluminium. Brad Tucker is not talking about the effects of an asteroid impact here. When a raging bushfire, an apocalypse of a completely different kind, wiped out the Mount Stromlo Observatory in 2003, astronomers worldwide suddenly lost access to one of the best telescopes covering the Southern Hemisphere just melted, and now it's just a cement shell of what it was. And even though Mount Stromlo has now been rebuilt, Brad says we aren't watching the southern skies for an event that would surpass any summer bushfire. Imagine a nation-sized firestorm, years without summer, and an indentation much larger than Australia's capital, larger than the Australian capital territory around it, which is about 90 kilometres across at its widest. It's kind of amazing to think that
0: we're sitting here and we're surrounded by this this little valley with mountain ranges all around, and yet further than what we can see with the limit of these ranges in the southern part of the ACT here from Mount Stromlo, there are craters larger than this.
1: So effectively, Carl, one asteroid could wipe out the whole centre of government in Australia in one fell swoop, and much more besides.
4: Yeah, and there are clues across Australia's ancient landscape that we've had some big hits just like that. Give us some examples. Well, the Woodley Crater in Western Australia is up to 160 kilometres across. That's big. The so-called Acraman Crater in South Australia is up to 90 kilometres across.
1: And I've heard that apparently the largest asteroid crater in the
4: world might be here in Australia too. Yeah, in outback Queensland, in Winton, there's evidence of a so-called twin impact site, an asteroid that split in two just before it hit. And each of those craters could be as big as 200 kilometres across.
1: We're talking a big rock now. Okay, so let's do a thought experiment here. If a really big asteroid was about to hit, how would Earth experience it?
0: So when that hits the Earth's atmosphere, you get that explosion more than a nuclear bomb. So the rest of this object then crashes into the ground. It causes obviously an immediate impact to the area. So, you know, instantaneously, a place like the size of the ACT is wiped out. These things move so fast with so much intensity, they literally cause the ground to move like a liquid. I don't think we can underappreciate appreciate just how much force is needed to create you know, rock, these things that are I'm um, rubbing right now, to turn it into a liquid. And then that all goes in the Earth's atmosphere. This layer of dust will block out the sunlight for a very prolonged period of time. Vegetation starts to die. The things reliant then on those vegetations fade away. The things reliant on those things, you know, that propagation happens through. So it's not like the dinosaurs all disappeared in a single instant. It was a prolonged period of global climate change, literally something that we cannot even imagine that transformed
4: the shape of the Earth, quite literally. That dinosaur-killing rock hit 65 million years ago, and you can see exactly how the shape of the Earth changed. The crater is called Chicxulub on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. It's about 150 kilometers across.
5: The asteroid that killed the dinosaurs was about 10 kilometers
4: across. Asteroid hunter and physicist Professor Carrie Nugent from Olin College in the US.
5: I have kind of a hard time picturing something quite as large as 10 kilometers. So I like to invite people to imagine themselves sitting on a plane in a window seat. Your seat, back, Burnley, your seat back upright or and then imagining a rock that's so big that it goes all the way from the land to the tip of their wingtip. And it takes a minute for your plane to fly past it. That can give you the size of the thing that killed the dinosaurs.
4: Think a ball of rock, 100 football fields across.
5: Then you have to also imagine that that thing is traveling faster than a fighter jet. And you can kind of get a sense for just kind of how catastrophic that particular impact was. It was a very bad day for the dinosaurs.
0: There's nothing that happens regularly here on this earth that we can even remotely get a sense of what this actually means. And yet it happens quite a lot.
1: If asteroids do hit Earth as often as Brad suggests they do, how will we know if one is on its way that's big enough to wipe us out, that's big enough for us to worry
4: about? Well, until very recently, we had no way of knowing, but that's changed. Let me introduce you to a guy with an outstanding job title and just the job to match it.
2: Yes, I'm Linley Johnson. I'm the planetary defense officer for NASA. And with a title
4: like that, I'm sure you get lots of people making quips about how great the, the business card must look and so
2: on. What does a planetary defense officer do? I'm responsible for all of the agency's efforts for detecting and tracking asteroids and comets that come near the Earth and could impact the Earth at some point in the future. What a job. I know, right? And just a brief guide to
4: space boulders here. An asteroid is a chunk of rock and sometimes metal. A comet is sometimes rock, but it's also dust and ice, which lets you see its tail streaking across the night sky.
2: But both could be dangerous, right? Either of them are bad. So we're trying to find all those objects before they find us. What are we using to detect asteroids and comets around the globe at the moment? So in 1998, NASA was tasked to set up a program, what we call our Near-Earth Observations Program. Most of our telescopes are in the southwestern United States or in Hawaii. But we're also working with a worldwide network.
4: NASA's first goal has been to track down the asteroids they believe are the biggest threats. Rocks starting at one kilometre across and larger. And they reckon they've found about 90% of those that could come near us.
2: That's correct. The population of those is estimated to be around a 1,000. We now have almost 900 in our database. We still find uh, one or two a year, and uh, in fact, we are just working an object that we believe is a kilometer that's just been discovered.
4: Yep, just casually spotted another potential species killer. (laughs) He
1: sounds strangely relaxed about it, doesn't he?
4: (laughs) Well, for asteroid hunters, the big ones are kind of the low-hanging fruit. They're easy to detect, and often while they're still far away, but we're not doing so well when it comes to the smaller and still deadly asteroids. Linley Johnson says one that's, say, a mere 400 or 500 metres across would be like climate change in an afternoon if it hit. Amazing. We're talking a massive impact site or a tidal wave and global temperature changes for months or maybe years as ash is spewed into the sky. So really we need to be paying attention to asteroids, big and small. Yeah, and even the smaller ones can do a lot of damage. In fact, at the 2019 Planetary Defense Conference, they ran a scenario where an asteroid just 60 metres across crashed into New York. Something that size released the same explosive power as 1,000 Hiroshima bombs, and it flattened most of the city.
1: Okay, I'm getting a clear sense now of what asteroids might do to us.
2: The numbers down to 100 metres in size are probably the order of 25,000. We have found about 8,000 of those so far in the 20 years that we've been doing this, about one-third. So we have a ways to go there. At our current rate, we will still be searching in the 2050s to try to find all these objects. We don't know
4: where all the asteroids that size are, or even exactly how many there are out there.
2: So, Carl, this
1: is sounding like a whopping big game of probability.
4: Yeah, and although Lindley mentioned a worldwide monitoring network, astronomer Brad Tucker says we've got a major gap in that network, roughly the size of the southern hemisphere. And he argues that a NASA funding cut has put the Earth at real risk. The Near Earth Object
0: program was actually defunded around the global financial crisis, when everyone was looking for cuts to programs. What is the first thing that's going to get cut? Well, an asteroid program
4: in Australia. He's talking about the Siding Spring Observatory in New South Wales. It was part of NASA's Near Earth Object Program, and it was the only observatory tracking asteroids in the Southern Hemisphere. But then. February 2013, Chevalence happens. Chelyabinsk was a small asteroid about 20 metres across, so roughly the size of a house.
1: This is the one that exploded sky-high above rural Russia, yeah?
4: Yeah, I actually jumped when I heard the bang while watching that footage. The beginning of the day looked like the end of the world. It's
1: estimated to be as strong as 20 Hiroshima atomic bombs. A 1,000 people have been injured in central Russia. Amazing after...
4: ball of fire streaking through the sky. This asteroid surprised everyone, and it was a real wake-up call for monitoring agencies. It shattered windows and knocked people off their feet. And this is a 20-metre asteroid that detonated about 20 kilometres above ground. And that created so much damage over
0: a fairly isolated part of Russia. Had that actually entered 30 minutes later, this entire thing happens over St. Petersburg. (laughs)
3: And was what it sounded like when it exploded. Yeah,
4: buddy, yeah. The Chelyabinsk meteor changed the US government's mind about how much funding should go to asteroid monitoring. This meteor over Chublice happens.
0: The near-Earth object program is reactivated. Kind of. Except the Australian arm is never reactivated. And that means that we were blind in the Southern Hemisphere. Brad could not believe it. So I went actually to Washington, D.C. to lobby saying, look, I understand this, but it
4: was literally $110,000 a year to run it. So one spring day in 2013, after getting off the red-eye flight from San Francisco, Dr. Brad Tucker met congressmen and senators. He had back-to-back meetings all day. He tried to convince them to find the money for Sighting Spring observatory survey operations, but just a few months later, all its funding had dried up. And the survey was shut down.
1: Right, so that means right now, as we speak, there's a large section of the southern hemisphere that is just simply not being monitored for killer asteroids by NASA's network. Is that the situation we're in?
4: Yeah, I mean, Lynley Johnson, our planetary defence officer, confirmed that with me, with one exception
2: that is true if your surveys are only done from the ground from the surface of the earth you see nasa does have
4: a space-based telescope called neowise that gives us some coverage more on that in a moment and there are plans for more southern hemisphere observatories in the future they're just not built yet but dr brad tucker says he was blown away by the decision to can Siding spring observatory especially given that call could lead to us all getting blown away you're not going to be blasted for
0: investing $100,000 for a potential catastrophe. But you would be blasted if you didn't fund $100,000 and your city had a catastrophe. Do we really have a whole lot of extra space that needs monitoring down here? Yes, 50%, yes. Why can we see the Southern Cross here? Why is it so great? You can't see it in the Northern Hemisphere. We can see two other galaxies. You can't see them in the Northern Hemisphere. We're blind to 50% of the sky, roughly. Plus,
4: these objects we're blind to can land anywhere. Who are we relying on, then, to keep an eye on the southern skies for asteroids?
0: Amateurs in their spare time. Like, that is literally the current state of affairs. Natural disasters like bushfires, cyclones, hurricanes, tornadoes. Those have budgets of billions of dollars, and yet there's nothing employed to find these asteroids in the southern hemisphere.
1: Amateurs in their spare time?
4: Yeah.
1: Is Brad Tucker talking about people with their backyard telescopes here? Mm Mm-hmm. Really?
4: Yes, but it turns out we can't underestimate the talents of Australia's amateur astronomers. Let me introduce you to an asteroid enthusiast, and this is a guy who has built several telescopes himself. I can see why you picked this place. I mean, the stars are lovely up here and it is a good clear night.
3: Uh, Yes, yes, it's better than uh, downtown Sydney. I'll show you the observatory. He's a
4: prolific astronomer and he isn't paid a cent to do any of this.
3: I'm John Broughton. I'm at Reedy Creek Observatory, southeast Queensland on the Gold Coast.
4: John's house has a viewing dome built onto the side for one of his telescopes. That's the Reedy Creek Observatory. He's made so many discoveries here that it has its own official name. So I designed it and built it. I don't think anyone would call you an amateur.
3: Unpaid astronomer rather than amateur. (laughs) I started actively looking for asteroids in 1997 and I found six new asteroids pretty soon after that.
4: His astronomical resume includes two comets and one PHA. That's a potentially hazardous asteroid. These are the most dangerous space rocks because they're really big and their path brings them close to Earth. So it was worth knowing about that one.
3: (laughs) Yeah, um, that was my first major discovery, but that came after I'd reported 1,005 new objects. John's more or less
4: retired from finding new asteroids now, but he switched on his observatory before I arrived to show me how it all works.
3: On screen we have asteroid 2007 UL12, which I recorded last night. It's just moving from there to there. Then I measure its position and I report the the new object to the minor planet centre.
4: The Minor Planet Center is a whopping database that stores observations of asteroids from amateurs and experts around the globe. And each observation improves the database's accuracy. So when astronomers find a new one, the race is on to train the world's telescopes onto it to figure out where it's headed. When John found his potentially hazardous asteroid, all the evidence suggested its path put it on a collision course with Earth.
3: It was moving perhaps 50% faster than a regular asteroid, and I wasn't experienced enough at that time to know that it was a near-Earth object.
4: This is almost exactly how the 1998 asteroid apocalypse film Deep Impact begins, but unlike in the film where an astronomer dies in a fiery crash with his records, John was able to send his data immediately to the
3: Minor Planet Centre. The Minor Planet Centre sent me an email it was from the centre's head, Tim Spahr. He was really astounded because amateurs aren't supposed to find these things. <laughs> so he was blown away by it, <laughs> So I was as well.
4: <laughs> Thankfully, we weren't all blown away by it. Follow-up observations let astronomers map its exact orbit, showing it wasn't going to crash into us. You know, that's
1: a relief, Carl. It does worry me somewhat, though, that we are relying on amateurs to spot these things. Once we do spot them, though, what happens next?
4: Well, objects in space move in pretty predictable ways. That's a
5: relief. In most cases, we can predict where these things are going for several dozens of years into the future.
4: Professor Carrie Nugent again, asteroid hunter from Olin College. She says a couple of observations like John's are often enough to figure out a space rock's orbit.
5: That path is mainly shaped from gravity, and so it's a relatively simple equation to predict it.
4: So it isn't all bad news. They are predictable.
5: We can predict where some super well-studied asteroids are going 800 years in the future. I can't think of anything else that we can predict for 800 years. Even English 800 years ago was Beowulf times.
4: But we haven't spotted all
5: of them yet. There's a ton around. We're trying to find all of them, especially the big ones. Obviously, this is a a serious problem and it's one that I would like to see solved.
4: According to one asteroid researcher I talked to, the species-ending variety of asteroids hit our planet roughly every 30 million years or so.
1: But as we said, we're playing a risky game of probability here. And Carl, given that we heard earlier that we are failing to fully monitor the skies above the southern hemisphere for asteroids, could we miss one altogether? One of the big ones, one of the important ones.
4: Okay, this is where the space-based telescope we alluded to earlier could help us. It's called NEOWISE, and what makes it so useful for asteroid spotting is that it detects using infrared. Here's Lindley Johnson again.
2: It was designed to compile an infrared map of the sky, but we quickly figured out that, oh, we could use all these images to detect asteroids. But this technique only
4: works well if your telescope's beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Smaller asteroids will actually appear brighter in the infrared. NEOWISE has already found more than 30,000 asteroids and comets. So thanks to NEOWISE, we do currently have some coverage of the southern skies, just not from the ground. And there are new ground-based telescopes
2: planned too. Both a space surveillance telescope that's going into Western Australia here, and then the large synoptic survey telescope that is being built in Chile, is scheduled to go in operation 2023.
1: Okay, so new telescopes are currently being built. That's a tick. We are getting better at detecting them. That's a very big tick, but none of this answers the question on everyone's minds.
2: Okay, so you drill, you drop the nuke, and you leave.
1: Yes, it's the Bruce Willis moment of the show. I, don't
2: I assume
3: you sent for me because somebody told you I was the best.
1: So let's say we know a big scary asteroid is heading towards
4: earth then what
1: what did bruce willis do
4: okay in the film armageddon a group of american mining experts are sent into space to crack an asteroid in half using nuclear
2: weapons and the remaining pieces of rock should be deflected enough to pass right by us
0: that's right we can always shoot bruce willis at it no so a funny thing of armageddon though right When you break up the asteroid, it just creates two asteroids that still hit the Earth. It doesn't solve your problem. So Bruce Willis made the situation worse. Thanks, Bruce.
1: So if Hollywood's approach won't work, what will or who will save the day, Carl?
4: Well, of course, why create the job, Planetary Defense Officer, if not to defend the planet? Lindley Johnson from NASA has a plan.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'd like to uh, tell people that I'm the real Bruce Willis, but they kind of laugh at me.
4: So what is the plan? Okay, there are a few ideas, and NASA's actually gearing up to test one in 2021 or 2022. It's known as the DART mission, or the Double Asteroid Redirect Test. And it's basically crashing a spacecraft into an asteroid, which is floating around a bigger asteroid, to in turn knock the little one off course. Job done. Asteroid redirected.
2: I mean, it's just a very simple thing of transferring the momentum of that spacecraft and its velocity to the target.
4: So, no Armageddon nukes, but we still get explosions. Excellent. And NASA has some other ideas they'd like to test one day too, including
2: what is called a gravity tractor, a spacecraft flown in formation with an asteroid, they have a mutual gravity attraction. And over time, that mutual gravity attraction, nature's tug rope, will slowly tug that asteroid off of its natural orbit into a new orbit.
4: That might also be possible using what's called ablation, which basically means blasting an asteroid with a bomb or lots of heat, maybe a laser, to push it
2: off course. And as that material is ejected from the asteroid, that creates a subtle jet of uh, thrust that will, again, change uh, the velocity of the asteroid by a subtle amount, but enough.
4: But with these tools untested, Lindley Johnson has said if we spotted an asteroid on a collision course with Earth today, NASA would need at least five years warning for any of these techniques to have a solid chance.
2: You not only have to build the spacecraft and launch it, you also have to have time for it to get to the asteroid. And then you have to have a period of months to years for there to be enough effect on the orbit. You have to
0: know where they are in order to stop them, but there's gaps in where we see. So do I think we're gonna see an extinction level event in our lifetime? No, I don't, you know, statistically not, I don't know but statistically I would say we're safe. Do I think we will see another turbulence one happen and people will see it and feel the effects of it? Most definitely. It's not a matter of if, but when. Are we doing enough?
2: We could do more. All the objects uh, that we are currently tracking, there are none that have a high probability of impacting the Earth any time in the next century. But there are still a lot of things out there that we do not have in our catalogue yet, and we need to continue the search because there is the next impactor out there.
0: None of this is meant to be a scare tactic, it's just reality. Just as we know in October next year, bushfire season is going to start again in Australia. Just as people should have a bushfire plan, you kind of need an asteroid plan, And and that sounds Kind of comical but we can at least do something about it to minimize the impact and damage and that's what it's about
1: all right so asteroids they are a real threat we need to be worried
4: yeah i think overall these things can cause widespread damage they've wiped out species before but probably for the first time in history, we can now figure out whether one's coming our way and maybe even do something if it is.
1: So, Carl Smith, thank you for joining us today. What's next in our series, The
4: Apocalypse? Well, next time, we'll be looking at another natural disaster that I think is even scarier than the two we've looked at so far.
1: In fact, the scariest, you reckon?
4: Yeah, supervolcanoes.
1: Talk to us on Twitter, at Natasha Mitchell and...
4: At Carl3Smith. That's Carl number 3 Smith.
1: And we'd love to hear from you via email and the Science Friction website and recommend the podcast. Tell people about it, folks.
4: And just because, here's one last big boom from Chelyabinsk.